I'm even willing to exchange an, an, a psychedelic anecdote sure. with you if you want to do it. Oh, totally. Welcome to the MetaQuest Podcast. I'm your host, Asko Fullman, and today I am speaking yet again with Dr. Jonas Kaplan, who is a cognitive neuroscientist from USC. And today we really up the ante, so to speak. We talk about psychedelics. We even reveal personal experiences we've had with psychedelics. We also talk more generally about the neural basis of social relationships and the biology of belief. We talk about political convictions. We talk about religious convictions. We touch on free will. And actually, Jonas has a really interesting take on free will, something that I've been giving a lot of thought after having this conversation with him. And I think and trust that you'll enjoy it too. With all that said, Oh, just a quick mention of our channel sponsor, Crypto.com, that provides these awesome metal credit, uh, not credit card, Visa debit cards that you can load with cryptocurrency and you can get a 2% cash back on all your purchases and a free $50. Just click the link in the show notes and follow the instructions. With that out of the way, I bring you once again, Dr. Jonas Kaplan. So you're studying the neural basis of relationships, human social relationships. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, really what we're interested in is empathy and how we relate to other people in the sense of how do we understand them and what they're doing. And one of the um, principles that comes out of that work, well, I, I guess I should uh, stop to say that there are different forms of empathy. And empathy is a bit of a complicated concept. Okay. And it seems that there are different cognitive processes that are part of empathy that map onto different brain systems. Right. So, for example, there is a sort of emotional resonance we have with other people um, that seems to come from a mirroring mechanism. Mm. It's kind of a simulation that the brain does. That when I'm looking at another person, I simulate being them myself. Um, right. The so-called mirror neurons uh, right. showed this. I, right? I, I interviewed uh, Gregory Hickok, okay. who wrote an entire book against yes, mirror neurons. But <laughs> he, he wrote a whole book against mirror neurons. But they do exist, and it, right, I right. think he perhaps right, right that the that. import of them has probably been exaggerated. Right. Um, but um, there, there is evidence that uh, that we do this, that we have this motor simulation of another person, and right. that the extent to which we do this is related to the extent to which we empathize with them. And then there are these other, you know, that also extend that simulation process extends to other kinds of feelings. So we've been able to show, for example, that when I watch somebody else touching a bunch of different objects, the part of my brain that represents touch is activated in a very specific way that allows us to actually decode what kinds of touches you're looking right, for. Right, right. Um, and the same is true for pain. When you see somebody else in pain, the neural mechanisms for pain in your own body are right. activated. Okay. Um, on the other, so those are all forms of sort of uh, raw empathy. Yeah, maybe a raw empathy. We call it emotional empathy. Right. Um, and then there's a sort of more cognitive empathy, which involves things like thinking about what someone else is thinking. Right. Like you know, he came in to interview for me this podcast. What was his intention? Why is he doing this? Or what is he thinking about what I'm saying right now? <laughs> right. Um, that whole process is a different process and involves a, a different set of brain regions right. that are. Uh, Probably totally. I, I remember reading about uh, this is years back, but a, a female scientist who uh, learned that she, I guess she suffered from Asperger's, mm. so she didn't feel empathy. But mm -hmm. she, I, I think she wrote a book on empathy, ironically, but uh, describing in detail how she had to sort of teach herself purely rational empathy, yeah. and even uh, like, well, also. <laughs> uh, 
trying to understand people's micro expressions and stuff like right, that. Stuff right. that just happens automatically. Yeah, so, and, and there is some evidence that people on the autism spectrum um, have some kind of deficit with that mirror neuron system. So mm. that the resonating um, sort of emotional empathy is, is, is harder for them. And right. Well. right. This is pretty fascinating yeah. stuff. Right. Okay, let's, um, let's go over into the biology of belief, which is another one of your research topics, right? I mean, so first, I do have my own theory on it. I would love to get your oh, take good. on it. Okay, oh, you want to start? With sure, that? let's okay, do it. Okay, so this is a very crude simplification, okay. sort of like an evolutionary uh, take on it, I guess. So theory of mind. At some point in our evolutionary history, we developed that capacity. And I think that a hyperactive, hyperactive theory of mind was so beneficial for us That it led, that it soon led us to not just uh, use it on other living creatures, but also on inanimate objects. Simply because it was such an, it gave individuals such an edge from an evolutionary point of view to have it in the first place. That it's more beneficial to have an overactive theory of mind, thinking that everything is alive. You even hear people say that everything is alive, right? Yes, but uh, but I, I mean I have no reason to believe that's true. But that's but but that's sort of the basic. Yeah. Well, you can't. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, I think that um, intentional cognition, thinking about it in terms of intentions and and um, understanding the world in that way, is a very powerful way of explaining why things are happening. And so we um, do use it in a lot of circumstances where there are no real intentions. We end up personifying things in the world. Right. Now you can do that without actually thinking those things are alive, right? Without being an animist. And you could think about my car is really acting up today. Right. Um, and that's a useful way of noticing when I need to do something about it. It doesn't require me to think something supernatural about the life of my car. Right. right? Um, so I think, uh, I think you're totally right. I, I don't think we need to throw out the sort of personification tool that we have. Mm. Um, I mean, I guess it strikes me that there's there might be a gray area, right? Because uh, so let's say you and I live in a little tribe. Mm. So I have a theory of mine, and and it makes sense when I use it on you, so to speak, right? I thought, oh, he has other motives. He's hungry, but, but I'm not hungry, but he's hungry right now. That's why he's taking my banana or yeah. whatever. But then you could say that that the gray area is introduced when it comes to animals, right? Because um, I mean, I don't know if you have any pets, but I have a cat, and I ascribe motives to her. Yeah. Uh, and I'm sure some of those motives are probably her motives. You know, she meows, she might be hungry. But I'm, I'm also sure a, a, good, a good chunk of these motives I ascribe to her are probably just in my mind. But... And it can be hard to tell the difference. Right? Um, I mean, it can. Yeah. But, but I'm just saying in terms of animals, other yeah. living creatures that are far removed from ourselves, but not that far, they're not inanimate per se. I, I mean... That's a case where it clearly makes sense. I yeah. mean, even for survival strategies and on the savanna. Right? That's right. And, you know, you don't the there's some experiments from um, psychology um, that show that people are very willing to ascribe these intentions, even to very very simple forms of displays and behavior. So there's this famous study by Heider and Simmel where there's this little triangle on the screen and there's a triangle and there's a circle and the triangle kind of moves out and the, I can't even tell you what the way this experiment works without describing right. the intentions of these it's things. It's trying to. It's chasing the, <laughs> right. the, the, the circle and that's just the way that, that people see it because we're so uh, attuned to explain those kinds of movements and behavior. So if anything matches even a little bit that sort of template we have for intention then we're very, very willing to ascribe it. 
Right, right, right. So, but but what what have you? Uh, how have you researched the biology of belief? Yeah. So some of the work that I've described already to religious belief and political belief right, is right. there. Um, I guess the other um, work that we've done that's that's relevant is to look at um, special kinds of belief that is interesting to me. And um, in the psychology literature, these um, beliefs are known as sacred beliefs or protected beliefs. Uh, protected beliefs is maybe a better term because sacred implies that they have to be religious in some way, mm. and they don't. But, but the concept is just that this is a belief that um, becomes so important to you that it no longer submits itself to cost-benefit analysis, and you just kind of believe it or value it based on principle. Right. Um, so there are a lot of things that we um, believe and we're willing to uh, negotiate about. So, uh, for example, I, um, I'd like to use uh, Apple computers and not Windows computers, but there's some cost-benefit analysis there. I know it would take me a long time to learn how to use a Windows computer, but if you paid me enough money, I would probably do it. It's right. a very high price. I would put it in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. <laughs> <laughs> but then there are there are other things. At least I saw your MacBook Pro. Yeah, exactly. At least, I have to, at least I have to think about how much it's worth to me, right? But right. then there are other things where if someone proposes that kind of trade to you. There's no um, cost benefit analysis at all. You just completely reject the proposition right. completely. Right. So if you offered someone, how much money do I have to give you to give up your child, for example? People are like, well, it's you can't. Yeah, 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 you can't. And even the suggestion of it is offensive, and in negotiating um, context can cause a kind of a backfire effect mm-hmm. where um, people are sort of you know now more less less willing to negotiate with you because you've made such an offensive <laughs> an offensive right. offer. And so you know because there's a, a different kind of cognition involved in these special protected beliefs compared to our, our other beliefs and values. Um, we did some brain imaging to look at, um, you know, can we identify different brain systems that are engaged by the, by the two different kinds of beliefs? And, and there are different brain systems that are involved in those. The, the other um, field of research that this um, touches is the study of stories and narratives, because a lot of times our beliefs and values are embedded within stories, and the way that they're transmitted from person to person and among cultures is, is through storytelling. Right. And so we have studied, we've been uh, looking into storytelling and how the brain understands narratives. And, um, you know, we, we find a lot of the same brain system invo- involved, brain systems involved when we are consuming stories compared to when we're thinking about ourselves and our identity and these important beliefs mm. and values. And so I really think that story is one, a narrative structure is one of the sort of main mechanisms the brain has for understanding the world and for building models of the world and communicating them. And understanding story is going to be really key to understanding the brain. Right. Uh, that just reminded me. I recently read, uh, what's, I, I may mix up the title with another book, but I believe it's a journalist called McCraney, David McCraney. Oh, yeah, yeah. I know you mean. Yes. Right. So, and he, he basically just lists <laughs> dozens of studies that all involve cognitive illusions, I guess. Yeah. But one that really uh, struck me and one that I've talked about on the podcast before is this experiment where they show people so you get two photos of two different people you ask to choose one of them and then later you're confronted with a different photo but it's presented to you as if this is the person you chose I see. and then people are asked so why did you choose this guy like point point to not point to where he touched you but <laughs> yeah. point, point to the the features that made you choose this person over the other most people are happy to do it 
and they, 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 they basically produce these narratives about their motivations for it. The more you look into that line of research, uh, the more the more confused I get, to be honest with you, because because it sort of raises the question: Is is everything we tell ourselves and each other just a story? Um, I mean, how detached from any physical reality is it? Well, you can say, yeah, I, I hear you. <laughs> I hear where you're coming from, um, and there there are a lot of things I'd like to respond to in that. I mean, you know, one oh, is you t- you touched on the again, this drive the brain has for consistency and for making a narrative that explains um, everything that I've done. This is one of the mechanisms for cognitive dissonance reduction. You know, we explain our choices um, to, to make them consistent with our, with our, our values. Um, and there are some extreme cases of that when we see from brain damage when people have some part of the brain damage and there's some inconsistency in the experience that the brain tries to paper over um, by doing various things. Um, actually, we all experience this every day with our blind spot and our vision, right? Mm. Um, we, we have a part of our retina that is not getting any information because it's where the optic nerve leaves, and yet we don't experience any gap there. We can't see that we can't see it. It's filled in, mm. and it's not a blank spot. It's very um, expertly filled in, like a sort of Photoshop fil- context-aware filter for <laughs> right. stuff that's around it. Um, and, and we do that narratively all the time because there are gaps in memory. They get filled in in various mm. ways. On the other hand, so in, in some ways that seems like maybe it's a um, giving us some kind of false representation of the world was what you're implying. And you, you said, is everything just a story? Um, maybe in some sense it is. But I think the word just is doing some work there that we should think about. I mean, a story is a, it can be a way of representing a kind of deep truth about the world. And just because it isn't a um detailed description was actually there it often abstracts something that's meaningful to us in an important important way that is true right right and i think that's why stories are such powerful forms of of meaning transfer right i'm i mean i'm sure that i was just reminded of i don't know if you ever heard this anecdote about freud but uh just again this is way over a decade i i heard this but it's so allegedly one of the first after he sort of invented his treatment or psychotherapy treatment, uh, allegedly there was this uh, wealthy family that had a kid who was troubled by the same recurring nightmare every single night. Mm. He was being chased around by a big black horse that was trying to bite him. Okay. And, and this uh, family uh, reached out to Freud and asked, do you, can you want to take our kid? Right. So he did a weekly session with this kid. For several years, I believe, from he was age nine to through twelve or something like okay. that, and 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 he and and I guess he left some notes on it in his notebook or something like that, detailed how oh, this was penis envy, right? He wanted he actually wanted his father's penis and some elaborate theory right, that right, that right. seems pretty out there <laughs> with modern goggles on. <laughs> right. But then one day, this the family uh, invites Freud over and tells him, "Oh, we no longer need your services, Doctor Freud." Turns out one of our servants um, confessed that as we were out some weekend, he was actually chased around by the horse. He, I mean, the servant let the horse out of the stables by accident, and he didn't. Have, he couldn't bring himself to confess, but but now he did. So we don't need, need you anymore. And allegedly, according to urban myth, Freud responded with, "Maybe so." But that has nothing to do with the nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good story. It's a good story. It is sort of ties in with what you just. Uh, yeah, yeah, it does. And how you know there, there can be um, 
multiple narratives about the same circumstance. And that's certainly what we're also experiencing now in our uh, modern uh, political landscape, right? Because we have these, because of the way the internet is set up and because of the sort of polarized little information bubbles we've all found ourselves in, there are different streams of, um, of narration that are being fed to different segments of the population. So even though there is a common reality in, in some sense, there are two different descriptions of, of what's happening. Right. I'm, sometimes I'm, I, I think about whether, or rather how that, that was different in the past. Because it seems like a very modern phenomenon, yeah. but sometimes I'm not so sure that's actually the case. I, mean, I, think, there's, I think there's good evidence that it's worse now. Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure it's worse now, yeah. and, and there are more narrative streams. And yeah. you can, another mechanism that's very disturbing to me is that if you have money, you can produce content uh, deliberately intended to manipulate people's opinions that's and right. create new narratives. Yeah. Or even if you don't have money, it's even easier. I mean, like, any, anybody can, anybody true, can right? amplify their lives now. It's, right. That's another great quote right there, actually. <laughs> I was going to ask you, uh, so which of your findings, or maybe just the areas of research you've been involved in, which of them would you say have, have had the biggest impact on your personal life? Hmm. It's a really good question. Um, you know, so just to, to frame the answer a little bit, I mean, I, I don't necessarily expect our research to have too much of an impact on my personal life yet. You know, when you're doing a basic science, you are looking at very small questions and making very incremental progress that you hope in the long run right. will improve humanity uh, somehow. Um, and, and yet some of the work that we've done more recently, with particularly with these belief change projects, have had um, very clear um, sequelae in the natural world. You know, we're definitely found ourselves in this political moment where it's just so important to understand these processes of why we can't communicate with each other. Right. And so um, I, I'd say that research has um, affected me the most in terms of like, you know, having to think about how I interact with people on a daily basis. Uh, can you elaborate a little bit on that? Um, well, it's just, it's just a part of life that you're encountering beliefs that, that contradict what you believe. And particularly as a scientist, you want to be um, in accord with what the evidence actually shows, and yet um, it, it's still you still feel that pull to hold on to your current models of reality, right? Right. And so, um, what I what I try to do, I've always tried to not become too attached to my ideas and to treat them as provisional. And you have to sort of do that as a right. scientist. We're creating these models, and they're useful as long as they're useful. But if we have new evidence that improves them or changes them in some way, we need to be willing to let them go. On the other hand, there are all kinds of other social and um, uh, political f factors that push you to hold on to those things. The, the, right. This is really interesting. It also made me think about: Do you find that? Because, because in a sense, you're you know, a lot of the stuff that you have been involved in and are involved in currently, uh, it's sort of the bad news, quote unquote, for many people. I mean, you you. It sounds like a negative, accusatory message in some for some people. Maybe, do you do you have any uh, words of wisdom? I guess about how to share an important message with the world, knowing fully well that it's going to be ill received because it has a negative message about the world. 
So you're saying if you have a message to give about the world, that the world is that isn't going to want to. It's going to respond with uh, backfire effect and cognitive dissonance. <laughs> Yes. Well, we'd like to find ways of delivering those messages in a way that can, um, you know, reduce those backfire effects. Right. And I think there are, you know, there are a number of things that we can think about doing. So, so someone like Anthony Magdabosco is, is right. doing good work in that arena and trying to find, a, a, you know, a less aggressive. If you don't come at people with a full frontal assault, you're not going to bring their defenses up as much. Right. Right? That's right. sort of the sort of principle behind um, what the street epistemologists do. Um, I, I also think narrative is, a, is another um, avenue for hope. And this is something that, you know, right. certainly advertisers have discovered this a long time ago. Yes, they have. <laughs> yeah. That if you can ca- encapsulate something in the form of a story, it can sink into us as almost like a Trojan horse where we don't know that, you know, we don't have our defenses up because we've just been enjoying the story and we right. don't necessarily know that the content of it has affected us in a certain way. Right. I, I do... That's that's one thing I've explored personally, uh, even with to go meta here with the with the podcast and you know how to brand it. And right now yeah. it's really just <laughs> I just say what I mean, and then right. that's my brand in some sense. But, but, but it just strikes me that we quickly find ourselves in a morally questionable territory once we dive into the narrative. Yeah, into narratives in general. Yes, I mean, there's definitely um, evil uses for all these things. You start talking about persuasion in the sense that people don't have as much control over the way they react to what you're saying. Um, But to get back to your sort of bigger question, um, is this a a sort of negative message? Um, I prefer to stay hopeful about our ability to communicate with people. And certainly one of the things that can help is to find, and I guess you're always doing this even in the case of trying to brand your podcast, is to find the point of commonality between you and the person you're trying to deliver a message from and emphasize that as a starting point. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, we have conversations with people that have totally different political backgrounds at, at over Thanksgiving dinner. Um, those if, if you emphasize the conflict, you can have a bad time. But if you start from a position of finding the common values that you both share, right. and we, we both want the democracy to survive, maybe that one isn't shared anymore. But you <laughs> may have to step back a step further to, to find one that is shared. Right. But, but in, in general, there is always that point There's of commonality. Always common that you ground. Absolutely. There, I mean, that you, whether it's humanity itself is some starting point. Right, right. Uh, I um, So changing topics here. I do have... Um, I want to. Uh, we should wrap it with with within a reasonable time frame. But I have some bonus questions I want to ask. Right. You. But but before we do that, okay, I listened to your interview on Stefani Rupert's mm. podcast, um, and you she missed an opportunity. I think you said that you have empirical experience with psychedelics. Mm-hmm. She just shut that down and ended the interview. I'm like, no, this is so. Uh, <laughs> like, like, that. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I'm I'm even willing to exchange an, an, a psychedelic anecdote. Sure, if you if you want to do it. Oh, totally. Okay. Um, I mean, for me, um, psychedelic experience was one of the things that got me into cognitive neuroscience in the first place. Wow. So I had my my first experience when I was uh, 17 years old. Wow. With, uh, psilocybin mushrooms. That's early. Yeah, it was the right time. Okay. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, I had always thought a lot about the, the brain and the mind, but to experience firsthand 
how a physical substance, something that I ingested, you know, it's essentially some molecule in my brain, um, completely changing the fabric of my experience on such a fundamental level um, was pretty convincing to me on a visceral level of the biology of the mind. You know, that my experience, that my conscious experience of myself and of time and of all the things that we take for granted was dependent on some kind of biochemistry happening in my brain because right. I could see how you know, this biochemical switch was basically pulled and, and all of that changed. Um, so on, on that level, that's one of the things that um, sort of solidified my path towards investigating these things from a biological perspective. So I guess it's my turn now. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, so I have two experiences um, that I kind of want to share, but I guess I'll just stick with one of them. So this is a few years back, not that long ago, and of course in a time and place where it was completely legal, um, uh, psilocybin mushrooms as well. And I had just listened to a friend of mine who was sort of an unofficial expert on um, lucid dream. Mm. He's been doing that for many years. He was interviewed on the radio program. And he was talking about these reality checks that you can get in the habit of doing, like, look at your watch, what time is it? If you can't tell what time it is, you're probably dreaming. You know, there's a couple of other... Right, right. So I, so I was, so as I was <laughs> tripping on these mushrooms, I, I was started thinking about that. I was, oh, yeah, I remember listening to this guy on the radio. Like, I, let me try these reality checks. And they all failed. Oh, wow. Well, I was awake. And I just couldn't, I mean, it took me, it took me months, honestly, like processing the experience afterwards. Like, what does that mean? But I guess what it really means is that I was dreaming while being awake. Or, I mean, that's a very <laughs> down-to-earth way of putting it. But it's a very interesting experience. Yeah, that is, that is interesting. And there's a way in which dreams and the psychedelic experience are related to each other, for sure. Do, do we know anything about this scientifically? You know, or? Well, we're starting to know more about the way psychedelics work in the brain. We've been um, hampered for a long time by laws that didn't allow us to study it. Right. Now there are those things are loosening up, and there's a lot of great um, research coming out now. Um, I have a way of thinking about the way the psychedelic experience works in the brain that I don't know if it's correct, but it's the way I think about it, and I do think it accords with current data. And that is that, you know, one of the ways of looking at the way the brain perceives the world is through interaction between top-down processing and bottom-up processing. Right. So bottom-up is you know information coming from the world and making its way through our sensory pathways. Let's take vision, for example. Light comes into your eye, it hits the retina, the retina does some processing, passes it up to the thalamus, which maybe figures out some light-dark properties and then passes it up to the visual cortex, which right. figures out bars, and it gets more complicated. And you build up the picture from the bottom-up, from the little pieces. On the other hand, you have these top-down processes which involve using what you know about the world and your memory to make predictions about what it is that you're going to see. Right. And then those predictions constrain the information coming in. And what we actually perceive is an interaction between those predictions and the information that comes in. So you walk into this room and you know it's an office and you expect there to be a table here. You see a shape that's vaguely like this. Your brain's asking whether there's a table here. It immediately gets confirmation. And no further processing of this table is required from you because right. you've identified it. Right, table, right, right. Now, what happens in the psychedelic experience, in my view, is that there's a loosening of this top-down information flow. Um, and so all the incoming information is no longer as constrained by the hypotheses and all of the learning that, that you have. And so, number one, you see more of the bottom-up information. It's not immediately... Um, 
turned off through identification. So if you looked at this table, instead of just knowing that it's a table and moving on, you might actually see all the different colors that are in there right, and the wood grain and right the pattern. Here, yeah, yeah, yeah. Normally not noticing because the top-down process um, is very goal-directed and moves on once it's identified right. something. And then also... Um, you're, you feel like you're seeing things as if you're a child with fresh eyes because it's not all being filtered through your knowledge <laughs> and what you know. And so that is basically what the top-down um, process gives you. It's so very fascinating. That's the way that I see it. Right. I mean, that might be an explanation, sort of like uh, Daniel Kahneman's uh, Thinking Fast and Slow. He has this system one, system two. That's sort of same type of theory. You know, you, you sort of accept and know that might be a crude simplification, but it's a way of understanding it. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating to me. I just remember that that same experience I had. Someone, a friend of mine, came and, and asked. She she wasn't tripping at all, but she asked if, if I could just uh, keep an eye on her dog. Okay. She put this little chihuahua in my lap, uh-huh. and she went to the restroom. and And I was like, I can't, I, I can't. I, 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 she came back two minutes later. The dog was gone because because oh, I, no. I just because no, I felt that you let the dog go. No, I did because no because it, it it wanted to go. It felt like I felt. I honestly, I felt like I was obstructing the natural flow of the universe by by holding the dog. That is fine. I didn't, I didn't want to do that. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, okay. Let's move on to the bonus questions. All right. Bonus um, questions. Okay. So we can look at these as rapid fire. You can just give your answer and move on, or you can elaborate okay. as much or little as Got you it. want to. What is the thing that you used to believe that you no longer? Mm. What is the thing that I used to believe that I no longer believe? Right. Probably a lot of things that are hard to think of on the spot. But I will come up with one in just a minute. I mean, I could, I could ask you the next question. Maybe that'll... Um, trigger uh, okay let, let's go on to the next one okay. I will this come is, back to that though for for a person like you this this is going to be easy free will illusion or real both both yeah. no no <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean that in the sort of I, I guess I'm, I slate myself as a sort of uh, Dennett style compatibilist I mean I think in a sort of from the physical perspective free will doesn't make any sense it's not a coherent concept there's nothing that's uncaused or, um, you know, even if things are uncaused, that wouldn't give you the kind of free will that makes any sense in terms of like things arising from within you. So we are certainly part of the causal chain of events that dates back to uh, the beginning of the universe and is totally predictable from an omniscient perspective. Right. That said, <laughs> <laughs> that said, there I do think there's utility in the concept of free will and that it it is a meaningful concept in that it distinguishes certain kinds of things we do from other kinds of things that we do, right? Like a seizure um, is is clearly different from intentionally moving my arm in a way that's meaningful and it's useful to make that distinction. And so I think when people talk about free will, when people who haven't gotten corrupted by the philosophy of it all, um, that's what they're referring to. They're referring to causes that are proximally, that, that the proximal cause is, is, is within their own brains and not from the outside. Right. That's, uh, yeah, thanks for using that wording, I guess. I guess I was, I mean, uh, yeah. Okay, thank you. (laughs) Sure. So if you could allocate $1 trillion to research, 
which specific area would you give it to? Wow, one trillion dollars. I feel like it's a cop out to say neuroscience. Um, but, you know, I, with a trillion dollars, we could spread it around pretty good. <laughs> I mean, it seems like from an existential point of view, we really, understand, we really need to understand how the climate works um, right now. Um, that's probably, you know, if, if, uh, if the planet is no longer habitable, then we can't do all the other sciences. Right. Um, so that's probably priority number one. I mean, in some weird sense, there seems to be a parallel between the human brain and the, the whole... The, the ecosystem yeah. of, of the global climate. Well, I mean, they're right? both because it's complex, so dynamical yeah. systems, yeah. Right. Okay. Next question. Have you ever had an experience that you, at the time, experienced as supernatural? And, if so, has your interpretation changed over the years? I don't think so. Um, I think I have had experiences where... I recognize the instinct to interpret them as supernatural, but I generally have not listened to that. I mean, one of the things that comes with being aware of all of the biases that your brain has is that you become less trustful of the things that it tells you. Right. It's a form of skepticism. I can attest to that. Yeah. yeah. So, like, I think there are, you know, there are coincidences and there are things where one thing appears to cause another because they're close together in time, where I feel the same instinct somebody else might have to... Um, link them in a way that would basically be some kind of supernatural ex explanation of what's happening, but I generally don't listen to those instincts. Right. So this is where I ask you the first question. Then. What is the thing you used to believe that you no longer believe? Yeah. I mean, when I was thinking about it the first time, I was trying to think about how my conception, because we were talking about religious belief earlier. Right. I was trying to think about how my conception of the function of religion has changed over time. Because I think I used to think of it as not having any benefit whatsoever in right. the modern world, right. at least to the extent that it um, functions to um, prevent rational thought and to um, give rise to beliefs about the structure of the world that are just ostensibly false. Um, but I have come to appreciate more um, the role that it plays in um, inspiring people to lead moral lives um, and that's valuable but I do still think of it as a kind of um, I have a metaphor from neuroscience that I, I like to use here for this and it's, it's uh, in, in, uh, in pharmacolo neuropharmacology you have uh, you know a neuron has a receptor at the synapse and there's a chemical that fits into that receptor and how it unlocks it so let's say dopamine is supposed to activate this neuron um, you can have different kinds of chemicals that interact with these receptors in different ways. An antagonist is a blocker, something that prevents the real dopamine from binding to the receptor. And one of the ways these antagonists can work is, is by binding to the receptor themselves. If I fit, if I put my key in the lock so that it occupies the lock, but yeah. doesn't open the door, right. now nobody can open this door. Right. And there's a, there's a way in which I now see religion sort of working that way. That's a kind of a competitive antagonist for our moral instincts. It fits into the space right. in our minds for that and so it gives some of some degree of the satisfaction of wanting to be um, living like a moral person but it doesn't quite provide us with the actual mechanisms for morality which you need to have which are actually being able to think deeply about other people's um, 
well-being and, and things like that. So Okay, so you're actually saying, uh, I love the metaphor, by the way, but you're actually saying the opposite of what many people say, many religious people, but also many just humanists or humans in mm-hmm. general terms. So what, what, you're, what, what I think you're saying is that morality, we certainly don't need religion to be moral. You're actually saying... We definitely don't. Religion sort of copied some of the moral framework, but yeah. it's sort of like a shadow it, version. It's, of an, it it's an imperfect out. copy that, because it doesn't feel like a copy, leaves you feeling satisfied and not seeking... You know, It's kind of like imagine a uh, landscape of hills and you're in a local maximum you're on top right. of the hill and you don't know that there's a mountain that's so much higher over there and to mm. leave this little hill that you're on would involve walking down a hill so it seems like you'd be going down right and therefore you're never going to discover this upper hill so mm. i see that religion in terms of morality is acting like one of these local maximum where it is satisfying enough to prevent people from finding the deeper truth that's higher up the mountain somewhere else i was going to ask you so what's on top of this what's on this hilltop um well that's That's a big question. I feel like you have some intuition about it, though. Well, I mean, you know, part of it has to do with understanding of the relationship between the self and the universe at large, and some sort of experience that and we talked about the illusion of a coherent self. Oh. Um, I think there are experiences of that illusion. Some of them you can get them through psychedelic insight or through a, a meditation um, that al- allow one to have a more objective view of the relationship between the self and the natural world and concepts you know any kind of concept that we stick to generally comes in the way of that understanding whether they're religious right. concepts or scientific concepts or anything if there's an attachment to linguistic concepts yes maybe. Yeah. yeah exactly so okay so I was and, and because I, religion I, encourages devotion to particular concepts I, i feel like it therefore provides an upper bound on that kind of experience right i do follow that I guess I was just I, I assume you you read uh, the moral landscape Sam Harris at sure. one point I mean I guess I, I think I felt what many other uh, people have complained about that, that they were I mean it was a great book fascinating read but that he didn't really make the strongest case because it's all based on reducing human suffering right but I find it fascinating that you you just made a case for essentially the same thing You don't need, yeah. need religion really to have morality. Yeah, absolutely. But you didn't even mention the concept of suffering. Uh, maybe I should have. I mean, I do think that is that is important. That is one of the moral principles that you will come to if you apply a sort of rational perspective on morality. I think because you, your starting point is positive by definition. The other one's negative by definition. I'm, I'm going to give that some thought. And okay. I think that's a great note to end on. We're, not right. quite, we're almost done. I have question. one more question. Uh, I have well, well, I have the legacy question. So in each episode, I ask the person I talk to to ask a question that they could just, assuming that an omnipotent being would be able to answer this question, what is your number one big question? Omnipotent being to answer a question. I mean, for yeah. you, you strike the omnipotent being, but just what is I mean, the it's number gotta, one question? It's got to be some kind of answer to consciousness, to the relationship between consciousness and the natural world. Yeah. I mean, to me, that's just the biggest question at the core of our being, of what we are. Did you read uh, The Case Against Reality, Don Hoffman? No, I didn't. You have to read that. That's, I mean, he, he, he offers mathematical proof of his theory, even. Um, 
I'm not capable of understanding the math part of it. But, but promise me you read that. I will check it out. Okay, for sure. So this is the final question. I'll okay, pass that okay. question on to the next guest. But this is the question from Anthony Magnabosco. He's the last person I spoke to. What is the best way? Well, okay, this is full circle here. What is the best way for humans to reduce human suffering? <laughs> uh, well, I think we have to start with the intention to reduce human suffering, right? I mean, that that is probably the thing that causes the most human suffering is losing sight of the uh, motivation to reduce human suffering. When you get so involved in what you're doing next and what you want, but you're not thinking about, is this going to increase or decrease suffering? Right. So I think that's probably the number one thing. That's really fascinating. Especially it's fascinating because I need, I really need to, to give some consideration to the way you framed <laughs> where we talk about the hilltop, right? Right. Because we could be talking about the same thing there. But again, one yeah. sounds negative on the surface level, mm-hmm. and one is positively defined. I'm um, sure I was rambling here. I'm section. just drifting here. You yeah. know? <laughs> <laughs> but that was a good question from Anthony. Right, right. And uh, thank you so much for sure. this conversation. Sure, thanks for talking. It was great. Yeah, it was great. It was yeah. That's it for now. Please consider subscribing, commenting, or why not even sharing this podcast episode with someone you know who you think might benefit from the things we talk about here. I, for one, personally appreciate that you took your time listening to this episode and will be back with a new episode very soon. Thanks for listening to the MetaQuest podcast. Have a good one. Cheers.